Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome back to TV Show and Tell, the podcast that takes some of the mystery and hopefully none of the magic about how television gets made. I'm David Bodicam. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggie, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor. And our special guest today is Monty Camera TV director Tony Gregory. Tony has delivered many major TV formats around the world, such as Big Brother, The Voice, and Lego Masters. We'll hear from him later. We'll also be looking at the link between TV formats and sport, and whether a recent Netflix show isn't just a little bit broken. So first, it's over to Justin with the news. And I have to say, Justin, I've never seen your news folder so bulgingly full. (laughs) There's a lot of news. I guess it's the beginning of autumn and when television industry gets back on its feet. But The new season, they call it. Is there no such thing as a new season anymore? You used to get adverts about the new season on BBC One in the old days. You don't get that anymore. Well, I think there is still a new season because so much is shot in the summer. So there is still always a little bit of that. And I certainly have noticed that there's been some, certainly some terrific new drama on on all the main channels. But anyway, so what's in the news? So there's a lot of spin-offs going on, I've noticed. Uh, So we've had Fastest Finger First, of course, with Millionaire, Mm -hmm. which has been an interesting thing to to spin off by just doing one round from another show. Have you seen that kind of thing before? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think I have, actually. I mean, like, Millionaire obviously has had things like Millionaire Hot Seat in Australia, where they've had, like, a completely different format Mm. where the contestants sort of swap positions. Yeah. But I... And I suppose Beat the Chasers is a sort of slightly similar situation. Well, obviously, we've got the Squid Game, which is spinning off from a drama into into a reality competition. Um, I'm a Celebrity is spinning off into I'm, I'm a Celebrity All-Stars. Mm. So we've got the return of previous champions um, going back to the camp in the Australian jungle. And isn't that pre-recorded? Or... I think so, yeah. And then there are rumours of a middle-aged love island. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> this has mostly been in the tabloids, but I'm slightly disconcerted that what they mean is people over 40 uh, that are middle-aged, because I thought middle-aged keeps moving as I get older. But still, yes, there are rumours of doing a whole new love island, but with a, with a, with older contestants. One of the people I know who works in TV development was giving some sort of... Um lecture or uh, tuition to some young people and he was asking them for like their opinions on on the other channels and particularly e4 and they, mm. and the, the people the young people went oh yeah that's the channel our parents watch <laughs> <laughs> so like you know targeting love island middle-aged people might might be kind of where demographics are at right now yeah well absolutely yeah so spin-offs is a big thing Reboots, again, we've had a lot of reboots come up recently. So as we know, The Mole is returning to Netflix this time. 
which is an interesting release schedule that some of mm-hmm. my friends are not particularly happy about. Tell me. Because, well, because they're going to release the first four shows in a block. Right. And then I think the next three and then the rest of them, in, like in sequence. So they're trying, I suppose, to straddle the thing between if you want to binge, you can binge a bit, but mm. they're also realizing that clues to the mole's identity hidden within the show. And the more of that you watch, the more ident- ideas you have of who the mole is. Whereas I think most fans would have preferred a one show per week schedule so that everybody yeah. could, could step march in the same pace. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing is that we've talked about scheduling and the return of scheduling a great deal on this podcast, but uh, that's a classic example of a show which benefits it so hugely from a weekly rollout and all that chance to speculate in between episodes uh, and and for viewers to dig down and think about who it might be, which is completely spoiled if you don't get the scheduling right. I think there's something interesting also going on with... I suppose if you like the loosening of brand awareness. So we've got Big Brother coming back, but it's coming back to ITV, which doesn't feel like a natural home for it. And then we've got Gladiator coming back, but to the BBC, <laughs> yep. uh, which doesn't somehow feel trashy enough <laughs> and so on. And then we've got Survivor coming back also to the BBC, having originally been on ITV rather disastrously 20 years ago. So I think it's kind of interesting with all of those that they've all basically landing somewhere new. And it really does begin to show that when viewers are going to find these shows, they're not finding them because they care about the channel they're on. Like the iPlayer thing, isn't it? When you go on iPlayer, the, the, the channels are kind of just hidden. It's just mm. it's just all stuff and here's the genres and here's different ways of selecting stuff. But if you actually want to sort of go, well... I remember that I was watching something on Thursday, 8.30 p.m. It's actually quite fiddly to to go back and, and find yeah. something by channel and time. People just assume that it's just a file that you've searched for by name now. Yeah, but it is also true that channels themselves give a show identity. Just as, for example, when The Voice moved from the BBC, where it really didn't feel it belonged, to ITV, it became a much better show. And it took on values and and so on from ITV. It benefited from the commercial breaks, actually. So when those things are detached from the channel, um, I know from uh, working abroad a lot that people get very frustrated now. Producers get very frustrated when they're working for a national broadcaster who says, oh, this is going to go out on our terrestrial output, but could you also make it streamable? And it's like, well, what's streamable? You know, what? How how can something be both channel specific and streamable? When... Are they talking about the the like the, the formatting of the show, or like what? Yeah, they are. They're talking about the whole content of it. But something that runs exclusively on a streaming channel has a different flow and a different structure. And generally, again, with series, for example, on on streamers, they tend to be front loaded. So that, you know, all the exciting stuff happens in the beginning of the series. I had a moment a bit like that this week when Make Me a Prime Minister, a new mm. Channel 4 sort of political version of The Apprentice was on. And it was done pretty well. However, I'm usually quite a patient viewer, but even I was sort of going, oh, come on, like fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, when it's like just just all the all the VTs of the contestants introducing themselves and things like that. And you just sort of think, is wasn't there a sort of a, 
a more energetic way of of getting through all of this structure mm. and you know you could easily wind 10 minutes forward through it anything yeah. and pick it up later and you wouldn't really have missed very much so no that's true i mean we definitely have learned some ways of watching and expectations from watching streamer tv but at the same time i'm i'm just interested with what happens when a show gets detached from its channel identity that's all so there's quite a lot of other shows to talk about, but I thought there was just one thing worth mentioning here, which is a legal case. So I don't know whether you're familiar with a show called Live PD. No. So Live PD was a very, very popular show on the A&E networks, which basically put um, cameras in the back of a patrol car and literally followed the police around uh, live uh, mm-hmm. with with a delay. Mm-hmm. But basically you as the viewer went on regular patrol with the cops. And was very popular, very successful for the A&E networks. Um, and then when there was a re- huge reaction to the killing of uh, George Floyd um, and so on, and, and the police took a lot of, obviously took a lot of flack for that. And so despite very successful ratings, A&E took the decision to cancel it because they just thought it's no longer appropriate. Now Reels has brought out On Patrol Live. <laughs> 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 they must have really strained the thesaurus to get that out yeah. we've only got four words we need to use three of them and they're now being sued by a and e so the complaint that was filed in federal court reads without any authorization from a and e networks big fish created a clone of live pd featuring wait for it the same primary hosts same content format segments and more and sold that virtually identical show to Reels. And they're accusing them of bad faith strategy, I'm quoting again, of capitalizing on A&E Network's reputation, trading on their goodwill, and passing off On Patrol Live as the same product as Live PD. Well, you see, if that was successful, how would you compare that with like all of these sort of police interceptors or motorway cops type shows that we have on in, in here? Yeah, I know. It's a really interesting one, because I mean, in some ways... There's not much to the format, but in other ways, I mean, particularly by using the same hosts, I think that's actually quite extraordinary. Uh, but, you know, and also, you know, Live PD's not on anymore. So I think we'll have to see because it will come down as it always does. It won't come down to, oh, these shows are a bit similar or very similar. It will come down to very, very specific format beats. And they are going to have to demonstrate the normal thing is if there are if you can list 10 possible similarities and the court agree with eight of them, you've got a chance. We have to make sure that Warwick Davis is judge and he'll get his, his tenable <laughs> grid out. <laughs> exactly, yeah. 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 So, interesting case. Anyway, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and report back. Now it's time for our special guest, who's no stranger to TV formats, music shows, concerts, events, and TV entertainment generally. It's Monte Camera director Tony Gregory. Our guest today, Tony Gregory, is a highly experienced multi-camera director. He has worked across documentaries, big entertainment brands, live concerts, large state events, award shows, and innovative factual and reality content. 
He has directed, produced, and consulted on some of the biggest entertainment brands in TV, including The Voice, Big Brother, Idol, The Verdict, Space Cadets, Darren Brown, and most recently, Lego Masters. He also works around the world, consulting and lecturing on formats, program development, production strategy, technology, and workflow. Welcome, Tony. Nice to be with you. So we'll talk about the challenges around some of the specific shows you've worked on shortly, but let's start with the basics. So you're presented with a new show. How do you decide how many cameras you need? And are you primarily going for coverage or does the camera work play a role in interpreting the experience specifically for the viewer? Gosh, there's an entire podcast needed for that (laughs) question, I think. (laughs) Well, first of all, it's understanding actually what is your story? What's the action? What is going on? I would also say there's another thing to add at the very beginning, and that's who's your audience too, yeah. because that does affect some of your decisions quite early on in terms of perhaps styling or, or, or messaging. The first thing, you know, really is when you know what the show is, what the story is, who's involved. So is that contestants, participants? What are they doing? What sort of people are they? What are we asking of them? The first thing really then to start doing is sitting down and going, how are we going to stage it? For me, it always works really well when you sit down very, very early with a set designer And you look at that story, and and one of the first questions I ask myself and the designer, and perhaps the producers in the room as well, is what is the flow? That's who's moving around the set? What are are they doing? Where are they going? It's a question architects ask themselves when they first start designing a building. What's the flow? Because if you don't ask that question, where to put the toilets or the reception desk or or, or whatever? And actually, a TV set is very, very similar. You know, where are we going to put the host? Where's the walk-on from? Where are the desks? And, 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 you know, that might just be for a quiz show. And if you've got a reality show, it can be much more complicated than that. So working out that flow, getting that right, how does that interact with the storytelling? And then really you're creating theatre in front of cameras, um, uh, which we call television. And then you start to think, okay, how are we going to shoot that? Does my wide shot tell the whole story? So can I just cut to a wide shot and people go, aha, I get it. I see what's going on here. What close-ups do I need? Whose story is it? Whose close-ups matter most? Uh, And so on and so forth. And then one thing that (laughs) you watch so much television, people clearly never ask themselves, what's in the back of the close-ups? It's all very well having a beautiful set and a lovely wide shot. And then you kind of cut to the medium close-up and you realise there's just grey mush behind the host because no one thought about that when they were designing the set. Or there's there's a pillar that's going through their head. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Then you spend half an hour or an hour in the studio going, oh, can we just put some slash behind them and find a gobo for a light? What's what's slash? Tell us what slash is. Oh, silver slash is kind of glitter curtain. Oh, right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, therein lies one of the dangers of, of getting your director on board late. Because if a lot of these things are designed, you know, and there are some shows where the director's booked literally to have two days prep before the first recording, and then it's too late. You can't rebuild the set. I recently worked on a show which had some physical games, and I was amused when the director said, oh, we're going to be just shooting faces and hands. Oh. And I just went, oh, that's, that's an interesting way of describing... A physical game? Shoot, shoot a physical game. With the, it was a bit like a Krypton Factor-style game with Perspex kind of prop. So you needed the face to sort of like look at the reactions about this is looking hard. And then you needed the close-ups of the hands so you could see how they're putting the jigsaw together. Faces are always important no matter what you do because it's eye contact with the viewer, non-verbal communication, understanding, empathising and so on. That's done sort of through the face and through the eyes. The hands would be important depending on what the action is. 
But you're going to get pretty bored of just those two sizes of shot. Well, no, no, obviously there was a wide to cover uh-huh, and things like okay. that. Primarily, the, the, the two key things they, they felt that mm. they needed to tell the story was those two things. And if that's what the game pivots on, and there's perhaps a little bit of playability at home, so the audience is screaming at the television going, no, that one doesn't go there, then actually they've got to see close-ups of whatever it is that should be moved to be able to play along at home. I think sometimes I see a tension in, for example, a a talent show when we got to the finals and the production and the choreography, they've designed some big stage performance. But when it comes to the camera work, whilst obviously there is a wide that has all the dancers and the fire and everything else in it, the audience wants to see the face of the performer. This is what I call the classic multi-camera director's shot dilemma. Right. Where normally at any one point, there is the best shot to take out of the choices you have, moving the story forward, keeping it interesting, and so on. You're absolutely right. In moments like that, so say talent show final, one of the contenders is singing, it's beautifully staged, and then you've got three judges, perhaps two of them are just laughing themselves stupid or something, which is part of the story. I have been in that moment. (laughs) Well, the question you have to ask yourself is whose story is it? And it's the story of the performer. And what is their story? Well, their story is they're on this talent show because they want to reach their dream. They want to win it and they want to become the next, I don't know, Mariah Carey or mm. whatever. And so, but and maybe that doesn't help the dilemma because then suddenly you've got this amazing moment with fire and motorbikes leaping over them and, and this incredible <laughs> bit of staging going on. And you go, well, of course they're going to be the next Mariah Carey. Look at this performance. But you've got two judges shaking their heads. One of the other pressures on a director is to make these live performances beautiful, you know, almost like a pop video, beautifully cut, perfect framing, lovely camera moves. And what you don't want to do is have a gorgeous camera move that really plays with the choreography, and then you have to cut off it in the live show because one of the judges is doing something amazing. So, of course, the classic get-out, and that they do now, that has become a fashion in the last two or three years, and that's to do split screens so that you can see both sides of the story Mm. at once. And there are some talent shows that do do that with the judges, actually. And and it's it's, it's creatively a bit of a cop-out because inset picture-in-picture boxes are never pretty. Split screens, you have to get right to look good. But how brilliant to be in the middle of such a dilemma on a great show where you've got two (laughs) storylines both important at the same time. So uh, so it's it's a really interesting observation and it's something that troubles multi-camera directors the world over. (laughs) Okay. I was in South Africa. I went to a recording of Idol and there was an interesting difference between the experience in the room and the experience on camera when the show went out about a few hours later. It was a theme night, and I think the theme was cheese uh, for the the episode, as in let's sing something cheesy. And most of the performers had gone for a very uh, sort of lively, cheesy performance. And one of them, who was known up until that point for doing a lot of antics on stage, had chosen to, to just stand beside the piano and sing. And in the room, the judges criticised her for being boring, for not really delivering a performance, uh, mm-hmm. not staging it in an inter- interesting way. When I then watched it back on television, where the camera was just on her face, it was absolutely mesmerising. And therefore, the judge's criticism then came over as wrong <laughs> to the to the yeah. viewers. Well... 
And a really interesting example. In a way, it also speaks to the slight inexperience of the judges for not realising how the magic of television and movies and so on works. You know, perhaps they didn't have a monitor. Mm. They should have had a monitor. The trouble is with giving judges a monitor is they look at themselves constantly. And (laughs) because usually... Usually they are of a performing background, and so you give them a monitor and they like looking at it, so you don't give them a monitor. And so therefore that's probably why they had no idea the television experience was completely different. It is possible that multi-camera directors can completely destroy a performance with the wrong decisions, um, but it is true, like the example you've said, where we can totally bring something to it and in a way amplify what's going on for the performer. Really interesting example, and I have to say it's one of my most favourite things is planning shots for performances and really climbing inside. What is this song? What is the story? What is the journey? So that when it comes to choosing the shots and interpreting that with, with camera moves and cuts in the right places, you know, you can, you can really work with the performer to create something, something captivating. And yeah, it, it's very different to sitting in the room. Mm. There's also another thing here that I wanted to uh, sort of explain, and that's how the eye works differently to a camera. When you're watching something that's been shot by a camera and you're looking at the screen, whether it's a TV or in the cinema or on your iPad or whatever, your eye is staying in one place and it is the director, it is the production that is directing your attention. Here's what you're going to look at next. It's a close-up. Here's what you're going to look at next. It's a wide shot. If you're in a room, your brain is doing the editing and your eyes don't have a zoom lens. Your concentration can get focused on something in your field of view, but your field of view is constant. So we don't cut to close-ups with our eyes. We just focus our attention on some detail that's caught our eye. But when you're sitting 20, 30 metres back from the performance, you don't have the ability to see some of the stuff that a camera on a zoom lens can see. And when it makes it a close-up, of course, that becomes the only field of vision. You can't see anything else beyond that. Whereas with the eye, you might just catch a twinkle of something that's going on, and then there'll be a movement in your peripheral vision that will take your attention somewhere else, and you don't get that same fixated attention. So it's a very different experience watching it in the room. But, you know, it created some nice, interesting storylines for them, I'm sure, with the judges appearing to be out of kilter with what the viewers thought. I had an example about, about that, about directing the viewer's attention to something on a show called Armchair Detectives, which was like a, a, a play-along whodunit show. And effectively, I was responsible for writing the murder mysteries. And whenever there was like a particular clue, let's say there was a character who, hearing a piece of bad news, they, they were going to like crumple up a piece of paper that was a betting slip. What you tended to see was a sort of crowd shot, and you didn't notice the person crumpling up the piece of paper because the, the camera wasn't particularly good at directing you to that piece of action. Action, uh, because as you say the, the eye and the camera work in different ways so I wish I had directed for a separate close-up of the piece of paper being crumpled up so that if we needed to go really clunky and go look at this person screwing this up then we could have put in that that close-up so just tell me about how that then resolved what what happened with the paper how did that then play out for the rest of that sequence it was the 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 first piece of video where the characters had been assembled and told that somebody had died yeah. and uh this person bet on that person winning a contest and it was sort of supposed to be like a gentle clue that uh, she was trying to get rid of certain piece of evidence perhaps related to this person 
uh, and that was going to be something that maybe the contestants would be able to find out about later on down the line. Yeah. But it was it was too subtle for them to notice. It was one of the things they didn't really get right. There's often pros and cons with making a decision about, you know, do I put the close-up in and really overtly direct attention, or do I just hint at it more? While you were talking that, I was also thinking about... You know, some of the things around sort of magic tricks where you, where the whole thing is about directing attention one way or the other, or not at all. Magic in a room is one thing, but magic on television, again, you can absolutely destroy a magician's career with the wrong shots, you know. And, and so all these things about directing attention and, and, and where are you looking and how much do you direct the attention or how much do you leave it as a puzzle? You know, that's that's all part of, I guess, the, the creative margin. Okay, so let's crack on to Big Brother. Let's get specific about some shows. So at what point did you come into Big Brother? It was the second or third series. So I wasn't there for the start. And I came in 2001 or two, something like that. I ended up the series director for eight or nine years until it finished on Channel 4, actually. But when you came in, I mean, here's this show, which was of a genre that we hadn't really seen before, with contestants who at that stage... I suspect, were much less steered and directed uh, than they were in later years. Much less performers. Ah, now you're looking, you're shaking your head for, for our listeners. Well, you've hit the word there. <laughs> Let's come back to performers. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, what I, what I remember from those early days was that there was, there was a more of a natural performance from the people taking part. Let's put it that way. So as a director, again, I said at the beginning, you know, are you looking for coverage or you're looking to tell a story that kind of show with the way the cameras work must have been a particularly tricky one to work out which of those two you're doing when there's a new idea and something that's very very different you don't really actually know what you've got even if you wrote it for a while you sort of have to live with something and it's only six months later that you can go ah now I can write the one sentence that describes this show whereas four months ago I don't didn't know it well enough to do that so I think on the one hand as well, whether it's the media, the audience, the production team, and critically, the, the participants, for years one and two, we were still trying to work out what this is. What does it mean? You know, what's the, there, were, there were broadsheet newspaper articles about the cultural significance, about teenagers talking to each other more like adults three years earlier than they had before, you know, Big Brother. And, and, and so there's so much there that's going on because it was absolutely the start of an era. It was the start of observational reality as we now understand it. At the beginning, it was much more raw because the simple proposition was no contact with the outside world, Big Brother's in control. That was it. And, and you know, and who's going to win? That, that was basically the format. But actually, as, as people started to understand it more, it became more playful. So you could do things have, like have two houses or... Uh, uh, all the other sort of, we used to call them popsters, um, but sort of format disruptions in a way that you could put in, because you've got to know it quite well to sort of do that. So that evolved. I think on, to your point about performers, well, yes, because the people who went in on the first series had never seen the like of it before and really didn't understand what they were letting themselves in for. And even really for the second and third series in the UK, that was largely so because there'd not been the time for analysis and, you know, media commentators chewing it over and, and so forth. And it also hadn't had, you know, some of the sort of bad incidents that were not, you know, good for PR uh, or indeed not good for the people taking part either. So that hadn't happened. So, you know, there was still a sense of freshness, still very much a sense of the social experiment about it. But of course, what happened after a few years 
is that you've got people applying to go into the house that have become avid viewers of it. So they knew all the tactics. They'd watched people who thought they were participants who thought they were going with a certain strategy to win, and then they saw how that played out. So they knew not to try that strategy. And then you get into the fact where at the beginning perhaps people were being more authentic, but as the participants became more knowledgeable, potentially more cynical, they became more inventive. And and so then you 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 you, you know you've got into sort of game playing people in inauthenticities and so on. But you know over the years you look at the, the, the certainly in the UK which I know very very well. But generally the rule is with Big Brother, it's the people who are most themselves that tend to win. Yep. So you think of Nadia, you know, the trans lady. You think of Pete and his Tourette's, and you and you think of these people. They they weren't really playing a game. They just wanted to connect with people they just wanted to show people who they were mm. and actually that was the best strategy so in terms of again how the camera tells the story of those people so as you're going along through big brother obviously you as a production are also getting to know them and the wide shot for example of you know the the, the main living room in the in the big brother house is only going to tell a certain amount of the story so how do you tell the individual stories of the people in the house and their journey in the house and their relationships with each other? And to what extent do you use juxtaposition of images and things like that to either tell that in shorthand or possibly even tell a story that's not quite there yet? So the thing with Big Brother, certainly in the early days, was as soon as someone in the group mentioned someone's name, oh, that's Justin. You must cut to Justin because that's how the audience get to know them, which you wouldn't necessarily do in a drama or, or, or other shows or a documentary. And so, so, I mean, that's a very simple thing, but there were sort of layers of things like that, which were very much part of the template of the storytelling. But the styles of that have evolved. That's down to who's running the show. And you also find differences between reality shows. Big Brother, I think, was always quite literal in how it told stories. One of the main things about it is, by and large, chronological. You talked about talent shows earlier, which mm. many people, you know, in, in the industry around the world regard as reality shows. And, and actually, the, the, the entire shape of the storytelling on those shows is very, very different because for most Big Brothers, the story is evolving in front of you. You're editing, you're transmitting within usually 24, 48 hours of a story happening. You don't know what's going to happen next week. Now, that's not how we're used to storytelling from kind of Hollywood and, and so on in movies because the entire story arc is decided before you start shooting. Of course it is, right? Logically, it has to be. But that's also where you can put in your little bits of foreshadowing, your little bits of there's something on the table that's going to become, that's going to become the weapon later. Uh, and so you can build it because you've written the story. Well. In something like Big Brother, it's really quite problematic. Because if it was a, a scripted drama, you'd be, you'd be saying, ah, well, we know he's going to be the winner. Let's put in that scene where he talks about always failing in life. Because you know the outcome, then the story that leads to it has different set of significances. And so that affects how you would it. But of course, you can't do that on Big Brother. But with talent shows, generally what happens is often there's three phases. So you have the, the audition phase, you have some sort of middle phase. And then you tend to have the sort of live semi-final studio phase at the end building up to the live final. But what you find is before you get to the live shows, you hadn't started putting out, you hadn't started editing the beginning of the auditions. 
So when you get to just before the studio, you know who's made it to the studio. Then you go back and edit the first audition shows because otherwise you've got 20,000 people. Which ones do you follow? You don't know who to follow. Yeah. You might follow all the ones that never make it anywhere. So you sort of have to know that on a practical level. But what it also means on a storytelling level is you really know how to hint at things earlier. And so, and you can kind of see what happens to the audience figures over the years for these sort of talent shows is actually those first and second phases have always done very, very well because storytelling is very crafted. And actually what we've seen over the years is that the live shows start dropping off because it becomes much less layered in terms of the storytelling. It's sort of quite binary in terms of storytelling. And annoyingly for the production companies and broadcasters, that's the expensive bit of the series to make as well. Well, it's been a while, but we have now a time for a number wang segment, which is where we go into the dark, deep crevices of format theory. And this one, Justin, comes mm-hmm. from a Netflix show, uh, which is one letter away from Bullshot, presented by Howie Mandel. And it's not Pullshot, before you ask. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. So this is one of several bluffing games that's come out. This one is show where a contestant is brought up and given a multiple choice question and it's basically a sort of very millionaire-esque style of game the more questions you get through you go up this money ladder that goes all the way up to a million and what you do is you have to press a button on a screen for the four options and you can see by the way that the screen shines whether you picked the right option or not and then three other people on the other side of the studio then try and work out whether you got the question right or not and you can sort of justify like oh i knew that one because you'd always try and bluff your way to say whether you got it right or not and then those three people try and work out whether you are telling the truth or not and if all three people think that you are lying and you were caught out because you you did get the wrong answer Hmm. whoever is the most accurate detector of whether you're correct or not so far in yeah. the game, they're the next person up to the podium. And so I watched um, about an episode of a half of this show, and it kind of worked okay. There's sort of quite a few moments when, like, two people doubted the contestant, and they, the contestant, it was revealed, had got it wrong. And so, like, they then honed in on the third contestant and said, okay, so if you doubted this person, then... They're off the show, and then we're going to get a new person up. And then it's quite dramatic when they sort of go, actually, I believe them. And then everybody goes, oh, no, how could you believe them? Because clearly he was lying. So the basic beats of the format kind of work. But then there was something that made me sort of go, hang on a second. This potentially has got a huge, huge problem. Right. What happens, Justin, if you're playing this game and you suspect... Although I don't think you're given any concrete information, but just you suspect that you are doing terribly in terms of predicting whether this person's bluffing or not. So what is the second best thing that you think you might be able to do? Not necessarily for yourself. Can you think of something else that some contestants might potentially try and do? Um, I suppose I would just, I mean, I've got a, what, I've got a one in four chance of getting this right or a one. Well, the contestant who's, who's on the podium gets one in four chance of getting it right. The other right. three people, all they're trying to do is guess whether the person on the podium 
uh, was right or wrong. If you're not going to win the money, uh, what else could you do to make the producer's life a misery? I don't know. I, I guess I, I guess I would just press a random button. Say we're not talking about your your performance. Let's supposing we're talking about the performance of the the person up on the podium. That person's only kicked off the show if all three contestants go. We think you're BSing. So what happens if one of the contestants goes rogue? And what happens if one of the contestants goes, look, I'm not going to win. So what I'm going to do is I'm always going to trust the player. Right. I see what you mean. Yeah. So, the so in other words, I'm going to keep that person there all the time. Yeah. So yeah. you could say, okay, look, I'm going to win. What's the second nicest thing that could happen? To see somebody win a million dollars in front of my eyes. So what they potentially could do is go, I'm going to trust, 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 and let that person win a million dollars because I like them or I like their sub story or whatever. And there's nothing in the game that stops that from happening. And of course, I mean, like, I'm sure that they've covered the thing about you can't do any deals with people beforehand or afterwards and stuff like that. Um, But, you know, maybe that person... Might, you might hope that that person gives you some money, but even if that's completely cancelled out, I do think that there is a type of contestant who altruistically, if they know that they're not going to win, could potentially engineer a situation where they, they could see somebody else win instead. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's the sort of thing, just putting a producer's hat on. So let's say that one realises this at a certain point during production or after a couple of episodes or whatever. You know, how do you fix it? And I suppose the only way you can fix it is with an off-camera. But even then, I'm, I don't know what it would be because you can't say, well, you're only allowed to, to not trust, to trust somebody three times or something like that. Yeah. Well, presumably in casting, you're able to find people that play the game properly. And I suppose mm. the other thing is the contestants are never told specifically how they're doing. And that was how Mandel actually sort of almost did a piece to camera that highlighted this fact for some quite weird reason. He sort of went like, hey, look, like the, the statistics are on the screen now. We're adding them in post. <laughs> it's like, it's like, whoa, that's so, very meta. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I wonder if that's the reason so that like the contestants, who the, the three contestants on the side, they must therefore know that even if they're doing really, really badly, there's still a possibility that they could still be in the mm. lead. So, but nevertheless, I did find it interesting that um, that could potentially happen. This, there's a couple of sort of side notes to this. I mean, like, for example, there was a show called The Search on Channel 4, where, again, the contestants kind of conspired against the producers somewhat, um, because there was a £100,000 prize. But the mm. three finalists uh, on the night before the, the final said, well, look, rather than us, uh, one of us winning 100 k and the others winning nothing, what we'll do is we'll each write each other a check for £33,333. Wow. And so everybody had like two checks from the other two contestants for sixty-six grand. The deal was that if you won, you... Um, honour the checks. You, 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 you honour the checks, exactly. Mm. Although there was named a winner, in fact, they had already, like, in poker terms, done a deal at the table. And then there was another thing, which was 15 to 1 final I saw recently. I think... Two of the three people knew each other quite well. Um, and it, I mean, I'm, I'm not casting aspersions at all, but it was just an in- interesting situation that the final question actually mattered. And there was a situation where 
one contestant who couldn't win could have potentially have buzzed in to just like after a couple of words just to ruin the question mm-hmm. therefore automatically letting the person who was in the lead who was the person that they knew win because and therefore mean making it impossible mm-hmm. for the person who was just behind the leader from winning so quite tricky isn't it you can't because it's a final and people have won their way onto the show you can't sort of go on oh, no, you you can't cast it because you've already no. you've already had these people win their way through but still um the- casting will only casting will only take you a certain distance anyway i mean you know we, we when we got you know when we were cast we talked about this last time but we you know when, when we were cast when you're casting people in big money shows you want risk takers that's the kind of person you're looking for otherwise everyone will just stick at five grand and go home but beyond that it's actually quite difficult to cast behavior to that extent you know that's why in development we spend all of this time trying to close all these avenues down but they do seem to happen more in on american tv and i do think that's to a certain extent because the kind of rigor that we have in this in the uk is not, is not always um, there up to the studio point. Obviously, when you get to studio, there's a lot of very smart things that happen. But now that like five thousand pounds is only worth like your next electricity bill, <laughs> people will probably be gambling a lot more now. <laughs> That's true. Now we're going back to our interview with Monte Camera director Tony Gregory and talking about how the director puts their own stamp on a show. So talking about style, I was just wondering if there's a way in which the job of the director has a certain amount of latitude to introduce a sort of Hitchcockian style or whatever into the show that they're shooting. So in the, one of the shows I worked on, the director had a sort of three, two, one countdown, but at the end of each shot, it faded to black. So it's like a shot of a face, three, fade to black, then another fade to black. It just was a nice way of introducing the start of each round. So what what sort of other bags of tricks or decisions can you do to sort of put a, a little bit of flair into the shows? Well, it's a really good question. And it depends, actually, because if you're on a really tightly formatted game show, so let's think about something everyone knows, who wants to be a millionaire? It's highly formatted in terms of what the director needs to do with the lighting move, the music's predefined, the shots have to match the moment, so they're not going to change very much when someone wins or loses, a question, you know, it's a question right or wrong, or they win the million or, or, or whatever. But the best thing, really, I always say is about being involved as a director as early as possible in the inception of an idea for a format or a show, because that's when you can bring everything you've got, your full kind of creative and logistics arsenal, can be brought to bear on this idea and and help shape it. And what often doesn't happen, you'd be surprised to know, is that an idea for, you know, it could be a game show, challenge show or something, is ideated. Is that the word, Justin? Yep, it's a good word. Yep. Okay. And, and and then you find, much later on, the director's brought in, and then perhaps you've missed an opportunity to go, well, we could stage it differently, or here's the problems with the close-ups, or whatever it is. Sometimes by not bringing a director in early enough, it just forces those creative decisions to often be made later, and the later you make those decisions, the more expensive they are, because you've either already built the set, or you've booked the studio, or you've put the lights up. And then to change the lighting once they're up is a bit difficult. You know, if you've planned this stuff, it's easier. So the other important point about getting a director in early is we're really good on the process of how things are done in the studio. 
If you were an international car company and you were you were designing your next amazing car, it's going to be a big seller for eight, ten years to come. You would actually think about how you're going to make it while you're designing it, because you don't want to design the next new amazing car and then someone goes, "Well, we can't really build a production line for that." But you'd be amazed how often that happens in television. And someone comes up with a format, and then some months later, someone thinks to put a director on the project, and they go, "Oh gosh." Um, well, if we change this and this in the format, it'd be easier to make. Let's move on to a show called Space Cadets. We've talked about Space Cadets occasionally before on this show. So to summarise, it's a show which was a big stunt. It was a big prank where a group of people were taken, they believed, to a space training facility in Russia to be trained and then go up into space in a space shuttle. This was played out over, I think, the Easter weekend and I know that you were involved in directing it. So what were the challenges of directing a show where the contestants, in theory, had absolutely no idea what was going on? Effectively, there were two storylines running parallel. Look, I mean, that is a classic device in lots of television, where the viewer knows something the participant doesn't. Mm -hmm. But this was taken to another level on this show, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, I have to say, Justin, this was 17 years ago, this show, and it's become a, a career-defining <laughs> show in some ways. I didn't come up with the idea at all. I mean, when it was first explained to me, I thought, are you nuts? That's never going to work. And we sort of sat down and talked about it, and actually it was going to work, and in the end it did work rather well, rather too well. I, I, I think these days there's a greater sense of duty of care to contestants. Mm-hmm. And one of the things the show potentially relied on was that they really didn't know what what was going on. They were actually being lied to. Uh, now, not in a way that was necessarily going to harm them because selling someone they're going to Russia when actually they're going to, you know, Norfolk on the east coast of, of the UK, I mean, is that damaging to tell someone that lie? But now we would think much more ethically about contestant care and the ethics of it. So, uh, So, yes, you know, look, there were 10 people that thought they were going to a Russian space military training centre and actually went to a disused airbase in Norfolk. And we had, I have to say, from director's point of view, a lot of fun because we turned this disused airstrip into a piece of Russia. And so the art department, uh, Patrick, who was our designer and, and, and lead in the art department, was utterly incredible, him and his team. You know, there were Russian signs everywhere, of course. And yes, of course, we hired a tank and various military vehicles. And, uh, you know, we were very lucky. It was foggy as the helicopter came down. And that was great for lighting and everything. So, you know, if you looked carefully at the ground, you would find Russian cigarette ends on the ground. <laughs> and, you know, all the sockets had been changed. There were Russian light bulbs in the ceiling. And, uh, you know, Russian crisp packets were blowing across the doorway and, and whatever. I mean, it was all about keeping an illusion. To the point where when we took them into what we knew was a simulator, but they thought was the shuttle, and then there was a sort of silver fabric tunnel between the building and the shuttle, and one of them accidentally pushed their head through it and the fabric ripped. Now, fortunately, it didn't rip too much because if it had completely ripped, they would have seen a couple of, you know, props guys just sat on deck chairs reading the paper (laughs) out the back, you know. And so... Uh, so there was a couple of near misses, you know, and it was a, I think I'm probably allowed to say a £10 million project, you know, which is a lot for those days. The sense of smell is the most convincing sensory input you have. So as they're coming out this tunnel going in, we need to burn kerosene at the back of the set 
But that was important because we were creating an illusory situation for them, which was a, a critical part of our storytelling. So anything to support it was worth doing. We then, after a few days, wanted to open, because obviously when the shuttle takes off, you can't have any open window, you know, any, well, open window or windows at all, because <laughs> you would see you're in a warehouse. So we said that, well, because of atmospheric pressure, the shutters will be kept down during launch. And then after 24 hours or so, we said, okay, we've settled into a, a gravitational orbit, but it's close enough to the Earth for there to still be gravity, which is why there wasn't any, any floating and wakelessness. And um, uh, we got away with that one as well. Uh, and then we decided to, we were going to open the shutters. And I'd spent weeks working with, with a company called Creative Technology, working on a huge render of the Earth as if from space. But this was before we had HD and UHD. We had six projectors stitched together, and it took days to render this graphic of the Earth. So when the shutters went up and they saw just the turn, slowly turning surface of the Earth, one of them came out with the same quote as a NASA astronaut from the 1970s when he looked back at this little fragile blue planet. So that was a bit of an achievement. But we had to delay opening those shutters to see the, see the Earth because there was a moth in the warehouse. And unfortunately, <laughs> there was an enormous shadow between the projectors and the wall. So we had to catch the moth first before we could show them planet Earth. <laughs> Uh, the participants were very, very good-natured about it all. I mean, how we finished it, we, we, we thought long and hard and talked to the psychologists about, you know, and they were like, oh, when they realised actually not in space, that's quite a dangerous moment. So we engineered a sort of set of circumstances where they came to the realisation themselves gradually, and so therefore that took the trauma out of it for them. Slightly anticlimactic end, but that was to protect them, but we'd had a great 10 shows out of it. Terrific. I want to shuttle forward now to Lego Masters. So I see what you did there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good to know this show is not just thrown together. Yeah, yeah, no, this is all carefully scripted. You have been working on Lego Masters in Poland. This was a show which wasn't necessarily a primetime show, but in order to get commissioned in Poland because of the budget, it needed to be a primetime show. And therefore, it needed to be presented differently, to, to David's point about style, in a primetime style. Yeah, so in terms of, you know, I mean, I'm really not an expert on the commercial side of it, but it is true to say that up to that point, Lego Masters uh, in its other versions around the world had generally been off-peak. And I have to say that was, you know, that was a very serious consideration. This was going out at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night on TVN, which is the leading commercial channel in Poland. And previous to us had been one of the big talent, shiny floor talent shows the week before we started. So we couldn't suddenly have this kind of show looking like it's a cheap off-peak show going in the week the following Saturday. So, And it's a different show uh, because it's not really about performance. And on the talent shows, you know, two-minute performance acts, it, it moves on very, very quickly. The, the story evolves fast. You know, with Lego Masters, it takes you two, sometimes three days to shoot an episode. Because your teams are building incredible models, they need 20 hours build time. And so what you then have is a reality show for that 20 hours that then gets cut down brilliantly to tell great stories with jeopardy and frustration and all the other human emotions 
built into that. Rivalry between teams, you know, it's all there. And then there's the sort of shiny floor ceremony stuff of it. You know, they walk in, they find out what they've got to build. There's flow around the, the, the set and so on. So that's the sort of shiny floor ceremony bit. But then you have these great big swathes of reality, which for the production team are quite slow because we're sat there for 20 hours over two days or three days watching people build plastic bricks. So, you know, what could we do to make it, to give it that visual grammar that on a Saturday night people would be accepting of it? And so there were simple things really, but it was around lighting. We, we just went a little bit further with, with some of the lighting and lighting effects. We put a steady cam in just to give it that little bit more of kind of polished production feel. So we sort of changed the look of the shots. Um, I worked much harder with the cranes to, to get a sort of Saturday night kind of feel with some of that. So it was a lot of little things, actually, but it is absolutely something that we built in from the beginning, knowing full well that the week before we started was a very, very shiny show. What about things like the elimination process? Was that the same, or did you stage it in a more dramatic way? Or It is the same, in a way, as the typical talent show, where you're doing the who's going through to next week sequence. You know, and I've worked on that in so many different places and combinations and, and scenarios. But we did sit down and work out how to stretch the moment, how to bring that usual jeopardy to it, how to sort of confound people by saying, well, these two teams are not going to make it through this week, and then play around with that. Or sorry, not, not, not that, but we get down to two. And then we have some sort of process of saying which one of them is then out. And, and just by layering it up, like you would expect to see on, on a sort of singing talent show. So I have to say, though, some of the LEGO Masters versions around the world, so particularly the Australian version, They'd already done a lot of that too. They'd moved the, the Australians had really moved the forward, format forward. They had a really fantastic job on it. As I they often do. And, and yeah, and um, you know, so a bit of our work was done for us actually. You know, by Australia. When you're working internationally, it, does it vary how you actually work with the particular crew? Is there, is there, do you have to use different vocabulary or is the way that you offer shots between you different? There is an element of cultural difference, but it's not just that. It's also, you know, you can work in one country and get crews to work in different ways and have got different backgrounds and so on. But there are things you can do. And I did 12 hours of live television in Romania three years ago, and I really... You know, I know two words of Romanian, and um, only one of which I could say. Um, <laughs> it was a it was a, a camera crew from the national broadcaster, uh, and I said, "Just can I have an extra day with the camera team, please?" And there was a bit of debate about the cost of the OB truck, and I said, "No, no, no, I just want the crew and a room." And I just spent a day with them, and it was fantastic actually, and it paid so many dividends. So what we did is we just got to know each other a bit. Partly, I was doing it to make sure that. Everyone knew when I said wide shot what the English for wide shot was and that we were going to use the same terms because it, when you work abroad, the language thing is the first consideration. You know, so I spent a bit of time just working on that and what the shots mean. So a medium close-up means different things in different countries. So just ratifying all of that, talking about my strategy for the shots. I showed some videos of sort of things I really like and some of the things I really want to avoid. I had, had my script supervisor, uh, Annie, there with me because they weren't used to bar counting for music. So we went through that, and some of them had a musical background and took to it very quickly, and others needed a bit more time. But imagine coming straight into rehearsals and hearing someone bar counting in your headphones and going, what do I do with this? You know. And, and then I, I, I worked out who should go on which camera. It's not something I'd let them do in advance and not discuss. We did it together after I'd spent perhaps half the day getting to know the crew. And, you know, we decided there were two 
female camera assistants that we decided to give the opportunity and make them up to long lenses for, for close-ups on these live shows. And it has come out of what I'd seen and heard that morning in, in a seminar. And, you know, that was incredible. They, their shots were just the best in the show. And no one had ever given them that chance before. Oh, excellent. I've heard in the past that in some countries like the US, the camera crews stick very much to the camera script. And therefore, what they're offering up to the gallery is the shots on the shot list. Whereas in the UK, for example, we're more used to the idea that, yes, they follow the camera script, but when they're off camera, they will offer up other shots to the control yep. room. And that we're part of a team. And mm. if the plan changes through no one's fault, then the plan changes. I have worked in America a few times on a handful of productions and not as much as I could have done uh, because it was not what I was used to in the UK for the reasons that you talk about. Um, I think things are changing, but there was a rigidity in the methods of working and that was affecting the end product, actually, I have to say. Um, and so I, I, I have found that difference in the US. Definitely. Sure, great. So where do you see the future of TV? Where, where are we going from with all of this from your point of view? Um, in terms of multi-camera productions and where we're going with that, you know, we'll always have to have multi-camera. If you've got a live event or an event where you've only got one take, where you can reasonably only do once, like a quiz show, imagine having to do four takes on a quiz show, you're going to have to have multi-camera. But how we do it has not changed for decades. I mean, yes, we've got high definition and we've got you know, computer-based lighting and whatever, but really, we've got the same people doing the same roles that we've had for decades. That is going to have to change because the average price of content has got to come down because there's more of it. But people will expect the same standards. So we've got to do more with fewer people. We've got to have much more kind of assistive technology and get the productivity up. We've got to have fewer people producing the same or better shows. That is the direction of travel. Quite how we do it, we'll find out. I heard a, an example of a, a set that somebody set up, I think in the Netherlands, for a cheap quiz show. And they tried to put sensors in the set so that when, let's say, a host or a contestant walked to a particular part in the set, it triggered the relevant music and lighting to say this is when this should happen. There is work going on in lots of places on this. So, for example, assistive technology has allowed a news TV channel to open in Australia which is run and operated by the host. Fascinating. Okay, well, we're going to uh, hear from you a little bit later with our show-and-tell item, but for now, Tony Gregory, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, here in the UK, we've just come to the end of our cricket season, and it's been an interesting cricket season. Uh, but I would say, Justin and I'm going to just throw this at you, bowl it at okay. you, that I think cricket is possibly one of the best formats that there is in general. Okay. And this is why. So when you're talking about a format, I think, or a game really, what you're talking about is like progress versus resources. So that the progress in cricket is the runs, and then the resources that you're managing is either the number of balls you've got left or also the wickets. In fact, there's, so there's two resources you're having to manage simultaneously. So that sort of makes it interesting. So it's a bit like, you know, if I can put a pound in the millionaire swear jar again, it's sort of a bit like the questions is the, is the progress and the, the, the number of lifelines you've got left is the resource. So yep. like an analogy. But why I think cricket's particularly clever is that there are four forms of cricket now. That is the 100, the T20, the one-day game, and the test game. And 
the only thing that effectively changes, apart from some minor rules, is the time limit. And cricket actually works as a game just by changing the time limit. And there's actually not that many board games or, or quiz shows or any or f- formats, really, that work quite so well in terms of just changing the time limit from whether it's 100 balls or five days i suppose chess does that doesn't it because you have you know the difference with speed chess to chess alters the game because you're relying on something else i suppose in order to be able to make your moves very very quickly that's true i actually have chess down for a different reason because Mm. i was going to go on to talk about the speed of a sport as well okay because (laughs) <laughs> there was a time when they put the World Chess Championships on, on Channel 4. Highlights were presented, not the highlights, the live coverage was presented by Carol Vorderman in the afternoons. And what would happen is like each person would like take about three or four moves each until they'd sort of established the opening. And then no moves would happen for about 90 minutes because each player had like four hours or whatever to make their moves. It, there was not particularly any rush. They They had to sort of stop at this point and... How did you, how do you fill 90 minutes of nothing happening? It's awful. I was once asked to, um, see whether backgammon could work as a format. It's a fascinating game. I love backgammon. I love playing it and it's got a very interesting mechanic with a doubling cube. But as a basic thing, it's, it's too fast. The, you roll the dice and that pretty much you only have, well, you might have one obvious move or, best two or three potential moves to choose from but the decision time to evaluate between the two moves is a few seconds yeah so that's interesting because if you compare that to something like golf i've always thought from a slightly different point of view that that golf is a terrific format and it works particularly well on television i think golf is much better on tv because in the end it's just about somebody trying to get a ball into a hole so you know a lot of the great best formats work where they're cleverly simple so you get you get into them straight away you know what the purpose is immediately and then the cleverness and the subtlety and the talent and the skill sets and all the rest of it come out as the game unfolds Um, and what's so brilliant with with golf is you need to know nothing about golf you can just sit there and say oh he's hit the ball i wonder if it's going to go in the hole and if not how far away is it and how long, mm. how many strokes will it take him to do it? How he's doing that and whether he's doing that well or badly is kind of irrelevant. And because you have people queuing up for each hole, you've always got something else to cut to, which is another <laughs> great thing. Something we, you and I remember from Treasure Hunt, you know, one of the things that made Treasure Hunt so good was the fact that you had two centers of action. So you could always either be in the studio with the contestants or in the helicopter or on the ground with the, with the runner. Well, that's something that, that Live Golf is trying to speed up with mm. a thing called shotgun starts. Do you know what that is? No. So what that means is that everybody will start on a hole at the beginning. So you might start at hole one or you might start at hole seven. So if you start at hole seven, you'll go seven, eight, nine, ten, eighteen, oh, wow. right. and then back to one. And you would actually finish your round on, on hole six. Now, imagine trying to follow the scoreboard for that. <laughs> so what they have is that they've invent- invented this thing called a totem pole that sort of basically says when everybody had, let's say, 15 holes left to play, this was their score. Now, mm. of course, everybody has played three different holes by that point, but essentially that's the way that they've found a way of um, right. of, of keeping track of everybody. But, yeah, it's 
it's certainly an interesting way of getting people to start quicker than traditional golf because normally golf, you know, you just, when you've just got one person on the course, there's not a lot to do. True. So often the coverage starts like two hours in when, <laughs> when, the, when the really bad people are only halfway through their round. But there is that interesting thing, as you say, about if people are making very, very quick decisions, then you don't have time to watch it and analyse what they're doing. And of course, you know, that's what Millionaire did back in the day was to slow the questions down Um, because it's always a problem on buzzer rounds and things like that if you want people to play at home um, is to give people a chance to, to play when other people are playing at speed. Well, that's what I have grave doubts about whether esports are ever going to work because esports happen at such intense mm. speeds that I mean, I know a bit about these games and I'm struggling to follow what most of them are about. Um, and yet we've had, as part of the Commonwealth Games this year, there was a, a whole sort of esports event. So uh, they're trying to make it legitimate, but I have my doubts. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, we, we mentioned, I think, uh, a few episodes ago that uh, Ninja Warrior is being tried out as a possible sport for the Olympics, um, for Los Angeles, presumably, um, I think. But, you know, a remarkable kind of shift. So this whole business between, you know, what is a sport, what is a game, you know, and to what extent either of them are formats is a, is a really fascinating one. And I think there's, there's always stuff that we can learn. So if we start to see lacrosse the game show in 2023, <laughs> then, then you know what's happened. Yeah, you heard it here first. Here's multi-camera director Tony Gregory with his item for our show and tell segment. And now we're back with multi-camera director and international consultant, Tony Gregory. And we ask everybody, Tony, to bring an object that might be related to an important or interesting or possibly even funny story related to their background. So what have you brought to show us? So I brought um, uh, a poster, uh, a framed poster. I first saw this framed poster when I went to visit a friend in Manchester two or three years ago, and he's got it in his toilet. Uh, and I looked at this poster and I thought, I really want to have that. And um, it is a 50s graphic design poster of the old Granada Television Studios in Manchester, which for many decades was an iconic building with its big white aerial sticking up at one end and a classic kind of 1950s UK utilitarian building that kind of looks almost slightly Soviet. <laughs> um, and... We don't really have television studio complexes like that anymore because this was the home of Granada Television. Uh, we used to call it the Fun Factory. It's where you had all the production teams in the building. Above all the studios that they're using for all the productions, you would get in the lift one day with someone from Coronation Street and then the next day with the host of a quiz, the biggest quiz in Britain, you know, the Krypton Factor, which is a big and it felt like you were at the heart of something. And there would be the graphics department and there'd be the set design department and you would go and visit the lighting directors in their smoky office. And it was all in the building. So it was a hub. And stuff would happen there because you had corridor conversations or there'd be a load of people smoking out the back, cooking up some idea for a show. And, and you, it had its own energy. It created its own kind of force and momentum and whatever. And what happens now is that you have sort of independent studios that productions book when they need it. You don't really talk to other people who are in the other studios in that production because they don't work for your company and the schedules are so tight. You're in the studio, you shoot your show, you go. And, and you know, yes, there's a little bit of reminiscing there, 
uh, and it, because it, it was sort of fun days, but having everyone in one place really gave it something special. And it meant that you created a centre of excellence. Whereas now everything's become much more casualised. Everyone's sort of spread out and disparate and freelance and uh, and so on. And I do think we've sort of lost something with that. And I understand why economically things have evolved how they are. But to not have those sorts of hubs and centres of excellence uh, and sort of mini studio cities is culturally a real loss, I think. As a slight devil's advocate, in the, in the days when you had, say, BBC TV Centre and everything was centralised in London for a large part, if you grew up, say, in, like I did in Darlington, the North East, if you wanted to work in television, that would mean that you'd have to leave all your friends and family and, and move quite a long way from home, whereas at least now things are a little bit more spread out. Certainly in the UK, there's been this decentralisation of, uh, of the media industry, the television industry in particular, and that is a good thing. But actually, we used to have, you know, in the UK, certainly were some quite active regional studios. So my example was Granada in Manchester, and, and it, was, um, it was a hive of activity. Lots of big, big international shows were made there. Well, thank you very much indeed for contributing your picture of a, you know, the 1950s Soviet building, <laughs> uh, which, which, we'll, which, <laughs> which we'll gladly remember about days gone by. But uh, thank you so much for joining us, Tony Gregory. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And it's time for Fake or Format, and this week it's my turn to try and fool Justin into believing that a show that doesn't exist really does exist. Okay, and so I'm going sensory on you this week. Okay. So the first one is called Sign to Win. That's Sign with the number two, Win. And this is a game show in British Sign Language. Three teams go head-to-head, and over a number of rounds, they have to use their British Sign Language skills, uh, which might be to do with deaf culture knowledge, or it might be to do with reacting to seeing some British Sign Language, or they might see something in British Sign Language and have to remember as much as that they have seen, and the winners get a £1,000 prize. So that's Sign to Win. And the second one is called Tasteless. This was a 2010s show from New Zealand. Similar to the Food Network show Chopped, three contestants are challenged to cook an appetising-looking meal with some un- unusual ingredients. In each contestant, crucially, has different ingredients given to them secretly. However, if their rival contestants can taste the food and identify what ingredients were in the meals, then they lose prize money, and the prize money is effectively their score. So that's called Tasteless. So which one is fake? Which one's the format? <laughs> Sign it to win or Tasteless? They've got, what have they got to do? I suppose they've got, they've got some kind of sensory element. Yes, I suppose that's vaguely true. Goodness me. Well, the Tasteless one sounds very plausible. The only thing I would say that makes me suspect that a little bit is that most of the shows to do with taste are about, you know, the ability to um, find a taste as opposed to cooking in order to to disguise a taste. Because presumably, therefore, in order to win, you'd be to actually need to be disguising the, these tastes, which is a slightly counterintuitive thing to ask a chef to do. So I've got so a little bit of doubts there. On the sign one, I'm a bit confused because people that I know that, that that use British Sign Language, they're so fluent with it. It's so much actually 
part not just part of a culture but part of their identity and so the idea that there'll be some kind of challenge to using it sounds a little bit odd to me mm-hmm. so those are the two suspicions those two reasons not to. so they're both wrong <laughs> yeah so that's the i, I think this is a, this is a particular <laughs> a particular challenge we should we should actually introduce that for the next, for this season is that you know they could actually both be true or both be wrong Anyway, I am therefore going to, nevertheless, I'm going to say that the sign language one is true. And you would be correct. Yes, it's actually on a internet service called BSL Zone, and it's their first game show in British Sign Language. Right. So there was a BBC magazine show called See Here mm, remember for that. deaf people. And now they did have what they called the See Here on Saturday quiz. Uh, which was an occasional thing, uh, which was a televised quiz aimed at deaf people. And they had observation rounds, general knowledge rounds, and almost like a regular quiz, but for deaf mm. people. And, mm. But uh, nevertheless, Sign to Win is a thing, and it's actually a current format as well. And that's about it for this week. If you want to contact the show, we're on Twitter at TV Show Podcast, or you can email us at contact at tvshowandtell.com. And we don't ask this very often, but if you are listening on a platform that allows you to rate the show, please consider doing so. Thanks very much. But for now, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell.